This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. I want them to know the truth. I want them to understand, you know, especially in our American context, I want them to have a good grid to filter the implications around us that we see in society. I want them to have a grid and a framework that they can work from. And frankly, I don't think that we can offer that to children unless we teach them the truth of our nation's history. Hey folks, welcome to the Fighting Racism series, a project made in collaboration with the Footnotes podcast and the Religion News Service. I'm your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby, author of How to Fight Racism. And this week, we're taking a look at homeschooling, talking about the racial issues found within it, the history of how we got here, and most importantly, a look at what's being done today to fight racism. So as we dive in here, let's talk about a bit of context and history. First off, homeschooling is on the rise. Spurred in large part by the pandemic in 2020, a lot of families switched from whatever they had been doing over to homeschooling. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, in a six-month period between March and September 2020, the percentage of adults homeschooling children doubled from 5.4% to 11%. Now, there are various reasons for this. A lot of parents and guardians didn't find remote learning, which many schools had pivoted to in the pandemic, to be an effective way to educate their children. Other parents and guardians had children with special needs that could better be addressed at home, and others wanted a faith-based curriculum and education. But whatever the reason, homeschooling has become much more common in just the last few years. And this is especially true for black families. Black homeschooling jumped from 3.3% in the spring of 2020 to 16.1% in the fall of 2020. That's nearly a five times increase in less than a year. In an article from the Religion News Service, they interviewed some of these black homeschooling parents who had just switched to homeschooling. One couple had three children, all of them with unique learning needs. And they said, quote, we didn't want our kids to become a statistic and not meet their full potential, and we wanted them to have a very solid understanding of their faith. Another mom in another family said her son was often the only black student in his classes at a suburban Chicago public school, he was sometimes treated unfairly by administrators, and was dismayed as other children stopped playing with him. There's an organization called the National Black Home Educators Network, and they said they had about 5,000 members before the pandemic, but that number has skyrocketed to more than 35,000 members. So this massive spike in the number of parents and families homeschooling children. Now that rise is relatively new, but the ardent interest in black parents and guardians for the education of their children is nothing new. Throughout long centuries of enslavement, black people were not permitted to learn to read or write. Oftentimes, it was even illegal for black people to gain literacy, and they had to go to enormous lengths at enormous risk to learn how to read and write. I want to read you an excerpt from the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. So Frederick Douglass, of course, was born enslaved. 
He escaped with the critical help of his wife, Anna Murray Douglas, to freedom, and then he wrote about it in a series of autobiographies. In one section, he talks about learning how to read and write, and it goes like this. I lived in Master Hugh's family about seven years. During this time, I succeeded in learning to read and write. In accomplishing this, I was compelled to resort to various stratagems. I had no regular teacher. My mistress, who had kindly commenced to instruct me, had, in compliance with the advice and direction of her husband, not only ceased to instruct, but had set her face against my being instructed by anyone else. From this time, I was most narrowly watched. If I was in a separate room any considerable length of time, I was sure to be suspected of having a book, and was at once called to give an account of myself. All this, however, was too late. The first step had been taken. Mistress, in teaching me the alphabet, had given me the inch, and no precaution could prevent me from taking the L. Gives you a sense of how hard it was to learn how to read and write in those days. And so, for black people, gaining an education became a sign of freedom. Because black people took education so seriously, they were also instrumental in starting the public school system after the Civil War in the period known as Reconstruction. So in starting these schools, of course, they faced many challenges, namely a lack of qualified teachers and a lack of money and resources. And so they worked with organizations like the Federal Freedmen's Bureau and benevolent organizations such as the American Missionary Society to staff schools and build school buildings. Now, it's notable that churches often doubled as both places of worship and schools, because these were sites, these were locations that black people held, and they often served as a hub for the community. In the 1860s and 70s, black voters and legislators used their influence to get their states to establish free public education to address the learning needs of millions of black people. And it should also be noted, it was addressing the learning needs of white people who were poor and couldn't afford a formal education. This period is also the time when many historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, were established, and I am proud to say that I work at an HBCU, Simmons College of Kentucky, Go Falcons. But of course, with education, it wasn't long before white leaders and others created new laws and customs that mandated racial segregation in schools. Now, you can remember of Plessy v. Ferguson and Separate But Equal, that was 1896, but of course, black and white schools were never equally funded, and all white schools gained the most resources. On top of that, black children, especially in the agricultural South, typically went to school for less time out of the school year because they often had to stop school to go help with the harvest. But despite all these hardships, black people learned to read and write and do math and science and the arts for their entire population. There were massive increases. And they found ways to gain access to the best educational institutions in the land. Or they created them. Now, what does all this have to do with homeschooling? Well, the issues that affect more traditional public schools also affect homeschooling. And some of the teachings that occur in homeschooling curricula are highly problematic when it comes to race and racism. In an RNS article titled How the Battle Over Christian Nationalism Often Starts with Homeschooling, they say it was a movement that originated among educators on the left in the 1970s. Homeschooling was increasingly adopted through the 1980s and 90s by conservative Christian families seeking to instill traditional values in their children 
and protect them from an increasingly secularized public school system. So maybe all this doesn't sound so bad to you, but one of the effects of these conservative Christian homeschooling and more broadly private school curricula was they didn't address topics of race and racism very well, if at all. Tyler Burns, who's my co-host on another podcast I do called Pass the Mic, he was a graduate of one of these Christian schools. And in an interview for Religion News Service, he said, it was just pure propaganda, nationalist propaganda. Tyler graduated from Pensacola Christian Academy, and he says that former Republican President Ronald Reagan was treated as practically the fourth member of the Godhead. When it came to topics like slavery, uh, let's just say the curriculum could have been a bit more straightforward. There was one very popular curriculum called the Abeka curriculum, and they said this about slavery. The southern planter could never hire enough people to get his work done, it reads, noting at the same time that only one out of ten southerners owned slaves. So, if you kind of get the thrust of these passages, the southern planter could never hire enough people to get his work done, it sounds like, well, maybe they hired black people to get more work done, or it was just a necessity because they ran out of money paying workers and had to resort to slavery or something. And then there's this gesture in the quote of only one out of 10 Southerners own slaves, sort of trying to indicate that it wasn't very widespread, wasn't a big part of Southern life. It only affected a small proportion of Southerners, white Southerners, of course. This all came under criticism, especially in the wake of 2020 and the racial justice uprisings that sparked a lot of people to reevaluate how their children were learning about race and racism. Now, there are new curricula springing up all the time that reinforce these white Christian nationalist beliefs, but there are other people who are pushing back and trying to make sure homeschooling and its curriculum are as racially inclusive and honest as possible. So this week, we're going to talk with someone who knows all too well the challenges that lie ahead, as well as what it takes to make progress in this area. After the break, we'll be joined by Brittany McNeil to talk about her work in fighting racism through an information program she created called At Home As It Is In Heaven, Raising Anti-Racist Children in Light of Eternity and the Hope of the Gospel. This is an informative interview that took us to some places I didn't expect, but I'm really, really glad we got to talk about. It's going to challenge you and inspire you. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. This podcast is made possible in part by Zonervan Reflective, the publishers of The Color of Compromise, How to Fight Racism, and How to Fight Racism, Young Readers Edition by Dr. Jamar Tisby. Zonervan Reflective focuses on faith and culture books that prepare readers to engage the public square with vision and verve, challenge the status quo, ask tough questions, and reflect the thought-provoking answers that call us to action. Zonervan Reflective is a division of HarperCollins Publishing, Visit Zondervan.com slash Zondervan Reflective for all your book purchases. That's Zondervan.com slash Zondervan Reflective for all your book purchases. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive 
Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Brittany McNeil, welcome to Footnotes and the Fighting Racism series. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. And listen, we got dozens of folks who reached out to us with really incredible creative stories, but yours stood out because of your field, basically. And we're <laughs> going to get into that in a moment. But first, as a lead into that, because it's relevant, tell us about you. Tell us about your family. So I am homeschooling five beautiful girls in the five girls. Yes. You struck the jackpot Uh, every single time. Yes, that's right. So (laughs) I have five girls and we're homeschooling them here in Arizona. And um, my days are mostly spent cooking a lot of meals and changing a lot of diapers and teaching kids how to do multiplication and division. Are we going to see some of them come through? Are you at your home? <laughs> no, I sent I sent them out there with daddy. <laughs> I was going to say with five kids in the house, you know, you never know. That would be that would be totally fine. It's a family friendly show. <laughs> no, no, I, I kicked them out the door and they actually told me to tell you hello. Oh, no way. Of your books. Yes. <laughs> oh, stinking cool. You just made yeah. my day. Tell them yes. I said, what's up? I will. <laughs> well, that is so cool. And um, tell, so so how do you spend your days? Tell us what kind of work you're into. So obviously, home educating all five of my girls takes up a great majority of my day. Um, but also in the margins of my life, I'm a writer. And I've been writing for a couple of years now on social media and blogs. And I've write, written for a few different publications. Um, I mostly uh, talk about and write about um, beauty and kind of balancing the tension of beauty and brokenness in our world. And it's just in the last three years that kind of the idea of racial justice mm-hmm. kind of started to come into that. And so now I feel like I'm kind of writing in the margins of my life at the intersection of motherhood, home education, and racial justice. So... That's what my days look like. <laughs> sounds, sounds very full, um, but we're yes. grateful. Uh, how did you get into home education? Um, was that something that you grew up with? Is that something that came on the radar later? So uh, my story is kind of interesting. So we were homeschooled a few years growing up, but we also did public school and private school. So I kind of had experience in various different arenas as far as education is concerned. And I would say that pretty much from the start, right? When I had my first daughter, I started um, kind of having these conversations with my husband and doing a lot of research and reading about home education. So I actually knew that I wanted to home educate very early on Mm. before she was technically school age. So um, yeah, and part of that was just for me having a more or less positive homeschooling experience with my own mom. So what what grade level were you at when you were homeschooled? So there were a few years in elementary school, and I think like one year of junior high, and I think a year of high school. So it was kind of interspersed with other schooling types as well. Let's start with the real basics here. How would you define or describe home education? Wow. Okay. Um, so that question is obviously relative, but you know, it very much depends on who you ask. But for me, home education is essentially um, the parents kind of taking it upon themselves to steward the holistic education of their child. So I think it's it's 
essentially trying to take um, what we've kind of made in the public school system, um, you know, it's kind of relegated to just the classroom. It's the idea of kind of opening up education mm -hmm. and seeing it um, in a broader perspective and a deeper perspective and uh, really purposing to educate the whole child. So looking at them as whole people and, and wanting to nurture them holistically and kind of using the world as their classroom instead of just, you know, the four walls that you may find yourself in in a traditional school. So for me, educate home education is mostly about allowing um, the world and the whole of history to kind of shape and form um, these little souls that we have in our home. I like that. I like that. What's some of the cool stuff you've been able to do with the flexibility of home education? <laughs> um, teach them the truth. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you if we really want to go there, I mean, I think honestly, one of the main reasons um, at this juncture in my life that I've chosen to continue with home education is because I want them to know the truth. I want them to understand, you know, especially in our American context, I want them to have a good grid to filter um, the implications around us that we see in society. I want them to have a grid and a framework that they can work from. And frankly, I don't think that we can offer that to children unless we teach them the truth of our nation's history. And so um, I like to be in control of that. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so. more and more so, uh, I'm sure you've been paying attention to the news and News out of Florida, for instance, where the AP African-American Studies curriculum and the defunded diversity, educate, uh, equity and in inclusion programs in, in public higher ed. So it's it's even it feels like more incumbent upon adults to take responsibility for, in particular, the racial and justice education for their children. Have you seen that change in the landscape? You know what's so interesting Um you know, I try to tell people a lot of times, whatever you see happening kind of in the public school arena, it's usually kind of a parallel experience with the home education world. And so, you know, you see a lot of pushback right now in public schools, you know, with the book banning and all of these different measures being taken to kind of um, obscure history and the truth of our nation's past. And the same thing is happening in the home education mm -hmm. world. And so I, I feel like we're kind of fighting very similar battles. Um, the difference is I, I feel like that maybe is not as prevalent in, in public school as, you know, in, in, in homeschooling culture, you have, you know, obviously it's very heavily white dominated and you also have this, how do I say it? You also have Christianity that plays yeah. a very yeah. role in the formation of it as a movement. And so, you know, they're, they're similar, similar battles, but there are some distinctions that are happening. And so in home education, I feel like the biggest battle obviously is trying to contend for the truth, but we're also dealing with these other layers and elements of Christian nationalism and different mm. things that infiltrated that space. Um, it's, it's very difficult to navigate at times. I can imagine. And, and to, to, to step back a little bit, like there, there are a lot of reasons, um, that people get into home education and right. my experience learning about a Christian view of education was when I began seminary in 2011, I had just come <laughs> from being a teacher and a principal in a public charter school setting. And my wife had been a teacher. My mom was a teacher in a public school. Right. So it was just like normal standard, all right. of that. And then we get to seminary <laughs> and it's the first time I heard the term Caesar's school or state schools, or you're giving your <laughs> children over to Rome. Right. And yes. 
speaking mm -hmm. of the reasons people get into it, it's to protect their children from like these pagan philosophies or the corruption of the world. Right. And, mm -hmm. and then there are folks like you who are like, I had a good experience with home education. I really want to have more autonomy and influence in this area. So it's vastly divergent. And all right, yeah. so let's, let's, let's get into it. Like, yeah. How is, why is homeschool education as, as sort of a broader industry, if you will, why is it so white or is that a myth? I don't know. Okay. So I think from the start, the, the idea that the home education world is, is predominantly white. I think that was very much true. Mm. And I think that that is partially why, um, at least in my experience in communicating with a lot of different uh, families of color, that was a deterrent for a long time was the whole idea of, well, I don't want to subject myself to yet another all white space, you know, where I have to kind of, um, you know, raise and nurture my children in that kind of an environment that, I mean, let's just be honest, sometimes there can be a lot of toxicity there um, over racial issues. And so I think that um, part of the reason why it's so white is because I do think it may be initially started as, as an attempt to push back against what the greater homeschooling community perceived as like cultural giants mm. um, that could be defeated, um, you know, or overthrown, which, you know, I think, I, I think that there could be some validity to that. Although I would argue that sometimes the motives and methods were shaky. <laughs> um, and so I think that's kind of where it started. It was this idea of maybe like we need to come out from among everybody mm. and be separate. Um, and then I think, you know, where people of color kind of fell into that was looking at it, as I said, and saying, okay, this is pretty homogenous. I'm not sure that this is going to be an environment for me. But I think the other thing that we have to talk about is um, demographically, a lot of times I think white families have had the ability mm. to help or to um, exist as a single income family and whatnot. So I also think that there are like economical barriers that kind of um, maybe contributed to that a little bit. But more than anything, in my experience over the last couple of years, it's really just a lack of knowledge and understanding of what homeschooling is and could be. Mm. And so I like intend that homeschooling is a beautiful option for families of color because in a way it is kind of like a reclamation of our identity and our heritage and kind of taking the wheel back in a sense um, and really kind of uh, stewarding our own lives and kind of having a say where we both know historically there have not been a lot of environments and arenas where Black authority has been able to thrive. And so I think that home education is a beautiful place for that. Absolutely. Very wonderfully put. And I was one of the reasons I was eager for this conversation is because we homeschool our son and uh, we did that for. Yeah, we do. Um, it's been what, like four years now. And um, similar, my wife had been homeschooled for a portion of her education. She thrived in it and did really well. For ours, it was really trying to avoid the stereotypical responses that young black boys get in a lot mm -hmm. of our schools. Um, I mean, we had experience where he's in, I want to say kindergarten, and he's not a worksheet, sit down and write kind of kid, uh, which a lot of kids aren't. He was, you know, so in, in the teacher's view, it's being disruptive, right? It's, it's, it happens the principal's response was to try to suspend him. And mm -hmm. I'm like, he's five. 
This is not the appropriate or commensurate response for what happened. And then uh, even not just the punitive aspect, but what we saw, what we observed happening was older white kids, especially the, the young ladies kind of treating him almost like a pet. Like he's, he's cute. He's different from them. And this is not a school or schools. This happened in multiple schools where he's a hyper minority. He never went to any school where there was less than 40% uh, black students, but just the culture difference, the class difference, all of that. And then, you know, he he would get up and dread going to school. And I'm like, oh, no, you're way mm-hmm. too young not yeah. to like school right now, not to like education. And so mm-hmm. it's mostly for those sort of racial identity, self-actualization, those kinds of things that 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 we chose to do it. And it's difficult. Yeah. It's costly. No, it's but yeah, so so similar reasons there. I'm curious about your thoughts on how does religion and Christianity get layered into this homeschooling thing? You know, again, I think that some of that question obviously is relative depending on who you talk to. But in in my experience, I feel like I am looking at education as a Christian woman, looking at education is discipleship. And I want to be careful how I, how I word this. I think there could be potential for danger in assuming that education is somehow different or separate from mm-hmm. spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. And so um, for me, you know, I'm looking at this and saying, okay, as I'm educating my child, and, and in a sense, I'm really discipling them, even down to, you know, these various subjects that we're, color- that we're covering, you know, math, language arts, whatever it is. The goal of this is not just to teach them basic math or to move through the the, the book for the year. The goal is to show them and reveal to them um, the sovereign God who loves them, who's made them in his image, who has given them something as beautiful as math and to help them see the connection um, with math in the rest of the greater world. And so for me, I think that is where religion and Christianity in my context in particular plays into this. It's for me, it's discipleship. It is an overflow of what I hope to pass on to my children as far as our faith is concerned. So, and I think that, um, you know, you have in the homeschooling arena, you have um, some who will identify themselves as secular homeschoolers Mm -hmm. and they're not homeschooling, um, as an as a means to disciple their children in any religious context, and so and and that's fine too. I think that's one of the beauties of home education is the freedom yep. <laughs> to approach it philosophically, however you see fit as the parent. Now, what's interesting is, especially since COVID, we've seen a rise in homeschooling in general. The U.S. Census Bureau reported in March. Um, the rate of homeschooling rose to 11% by September 2020 from just 5.4% six months earlier, so doubled. And then there was another statistic that the National Black Home Educators Organization, it's been Mm -hmm. around for over 20 years. It had about 5,000 members before the pandemic. That jumped to more than 35,000. Uh, mm-hmm. by, I guess, uh, the end of 2020. So it's this is incredible growth or rise in homeschooling in general, but also in particular with Black families that are um, home educating. Have you seen that surge where you are? 
Um, I have not been able to witness that as much as I hope to in, in my immediate context here in Phoenix, Arizona, but I have noticed that and observed that across like the social media landscape. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really beautiful. And I feel like 2020 was a very interesting period of time for a lot of people of color. I know for me and part of my testimony, that was where my longtime struggle with internalized racism really came to a head okay. um, during the and during and after what the lynching of, of George Floyd. And so um, I think that time period was so raw from a racial standpoint um, for so many of us. I think that the spike that we see um, was one, I think people realizing maybe that they wanted something different for their life, that they wanted to slow down. I think we all really got in a, a lesson in numbering our days, yes. you know, walk through the pandemic together. Um, but more than anything, I think that you know, we use that phrase in our black communities of, you know, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I feel like that period of time during the pandemic, that the the months that you're talking about, I feel like that was kind of the linchpin Mm -hmm. (laughs) for many of us that it was like, okay, enough is enough. I don't want to see some of these cycles repeated. I don't want my black children to have the same story. I want them to carry a new story in their bones. Mm. Um, and I feel like I felt that and I felt like I watched that kind of happen across the educational landscape as well. Like enough is enough. We're bringing them home. We are going to teach them the truth. <laughs> you know, we are going to build up their confidence. We're going to let them know who they are. And so I think that's why we saw that spike. Well, I'm glad you mentioned um, that 2020 and and you you almost talk about sort of a before and after. So you were describing kind of what you do and that this emphasis on race and racial justice was relatively recent. How would you describe your approach maybe before 2020 and then maybe some differences after that? My story is complicated and nuanced, but I... All the best ones are. Yes, I think um, kind of similar to what you shared about yourself. I grew up in predominantly white spaces And our context was very unique because I grew up, my parents um, pastored local churches for most of my life. So I grew up actually in a ministry family, um, you know, a black family, but inhabiting white spaces Mm. and parents were kind of ordained and commissioned um, in ministry in white spaces. And so I I feel like a lot of times when people hear my story, they're like, we don't understand your parents pastored a multi-ethnic congregation. Like, how did this awakening to racial issues suddenly spring up? And I always tell them, like, I know on the surface that seems impossible, <laughs> but it is, in fact, a reality for a lot of us that have grown up in evangelical spaces. And, you know, my parents, unfortunately, and, I, and they've, I think, experienced a lot of healing in the last couple of years, but there was a lot of assimilation and different things that that had to happen on their end in order for them to survive. And right. we spent a good portion of my upbringing in Nashville, Tennessee. So that is a whole different beast in the South. And so it's like um, the Rome of evangelicalism. Yes. And so I had to, I was really brought up in, in a culture that claimed diversity. That was kind of one of our hallmark trades of, you know, we're a diverse church movement. But when I look back and I know hindsight's 2020, really it wasn't diversity as it should be. If that makes sense. I know you know what I'm talking about because I know you've been in similar spaces. Yes. So, um, you know, I kind of grew up around that environment and then obviously kind of heavily influenced by the lost cause, um, you know, a lot of Christian nationalism. 
um, alt-right conservatism. And so I always jokingly tell people <laughs> that certain camps can't get anything past me because I used to be the likes of um, a special person whose name starts with C and her last name starts with O. <laughs> wow. So, okay. Um, okay. So that's when you a, used to read read that or you used to be that, what did you say? <laughs> I used to be that way. Um, and the, yes. And so obviously on a much smaller, more insignificant scale than that particular individual, but that is the school of thought where I come from. And so a lot of times, you know, when people come at me with some of those arguments and angles um, that that individual does, I'm like, you, you can't really go there with me because I've already been there, done that and have, you know, <laughs> made sense of that. You, you, you know, the game. Yeah. yeah, I know the game. And so it was, and, and really the root of that though, um, and I actually made a post about this um, a few months back, kind of right in the heat when that individual and another individual came out with the the White Lives Matter um, shirts. Yeah. And I actually made a post talking about uh, more or less kind of the the pity that I felt in a way, because I remember what it was like oh. to be that person. Um, and I also remember the internalized racism that was under the surface of all of that. And so um, that's kind of where I'm coming from. <laughs> okay. Um, I didn't know we were going here, but we got to park it here for a second. Um, <laughs> it, it's very rare. Your testimony is very rare. Um, and it's very rare for it to come out in a series like this. So help us understand, for folks who aren't familiar with the term, what is internalized racism? So as best as I can describe it, my understanding um, internalized racism is is when someone takes the kind of the ideas um, that racism espouses and they essentially internalize them. So whatever racism seeks to accomplish as far as racial hierarchy, prejudice and all those things, it's kind of you internalize that in the sense of you believe what racism wishes to be true. Mm. If that um, and hopefully I'm explaining as a that person well. of color. As a person yeah. of color. So yeah. you have the messages that racism communicates and sends and, and the tenets of it. Um, you essentially internalize those things. And a lot of times without even knowing that you have. Um, and so, like I said, for me, I walked around with that, you know, most of my life. And of course, now that I reflect back, I can see it as clear as day. Yeah. But at the time, I couldn't see that. Um, and that, like I said, the kind of turning point for me was was getting to 2020. And God had done a few things along my journey where it was almost like he was trying, you know, to kind of remove that veil from my eyes. And it didn't happen at the time, but they were like small nudges. Um, but then that time, that 2020 boy, that, that just blew everything up for me. Take me inside the experience of having that different mindset um when you heard black people maybe even people like me talking about race i mean how how did you process that like they were they're they're just duped they're brainwashed they're just you know they're they're not sufficiently christian i don't know like what would you think when you saw other black people or people of color expressing racial views that at the time were very different from your own Man, I'm not sure I can talk about that without getting emotional. Um, well, we, it's whatever you're comfortable with. We can move on if you if you want. No, no, I, I want to share because I think it's important. Um, 
you know, I think for me, I think I was essentially taught to distrust and mistrust Black voices Mm. unless they were packaged in this one form. And so for me, um, I mean, I even recall conversations with family members who weren't aligned the same way with myself and my immediate, immediate family making comments or sharing about their racial experiences and things like that. And I sometimes remember the remarks that I would make and have had to since go back and apologize and, and make restitution for those things because I couldn't see it, even though all along I had my own racialized experiences that I basically just explained away. Wow. Um, Because in my mind, that's not a real thing that doesn't exist today anymore. You know, and so I had moments and experiences of racism that I essentially just suppressed and more or less acted like they weren't there or that they weren't happening. And so, yeah, I feel like there's, it's such a raw thing, you know what I mean? To, To come to that realization that for so long, I had viewed the vast majority of my own people kind of through this, um, this condescending lens. And I even talked about this recently in the course that I just put out, um, helping parents to raise anti-racist kids. I said, one of the primary ways that you can identify when a person is under the influence of internalized racism is how quickly they're able to disparage their own people. Whoa. And so that was one of the main things for me. And when I look back, I can see it is my, my quickness to jump on and talk poorly about the Black community or to chirp and rattle off what I've heard from this white camp or this white camp. And so I think that's one of kind of the tall tale signs of someone who is severely hurting. And it doesn't look like that on the outside because mm. usually they look very pompous and confident in what they're asserting, um, which is why I said, uh, mentioning that person earlier, I felt pity mm. because what's underneath that. And so, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but. It does. And I just want to pause and say that's a sacred moment of you sharing. I've never had this particular conversation on the mic before. And I think that your testimony is liberating, Um, even as it's painful, even as it's something I'm sure you're continually working through. uh, You honor us with with your honesty in in telling that story so very very much from the bottom of my heart thank you um what was it about 2020 that sort of <laughs> to avoid <laughs> avoid the word awakened because then you say woke and people are like ah hair's on fire but you know what was it about that season in our sort of national story that moved you um change your perspective Well, I think, you know, I I feel like it was kind of a perfect storm in a way. And I'm actually writing about this right now um, in a book. But I think what made it so different and what allowed those events to catch my attention was, to be honest, I think that the pandemic really, in, in a way, I think in God's providence, paved a way for people to really and truly, maybe even for the first time in their lives, open up to this conversation. Um, and I even remember in those first early weeks of the pandemic, and I think this was maybe, maybe even just days after George Floyd's death, um, writing that maybe just maybe God had to isolate us in order to reconcile mm. because 
I was there's a preacher's kid coming out. Come on. Isolate <laughs> um, us. I'm like, I'm like don't get me started. Yeah, don't get me started. I won't preach on this podcast. No, um, I just remember being so overwhelmingly shocked by the amount of people that rose to the occasion to the occasion to show solidarity. I remember weeping and weeping and looking around me and saying, how is it? that this person is being willing to speak up and that mm. person is willing to say something. I was shocked because I, one, I had never witnessed anything like that before. Um, I had never witnessed a moment in my lifetime where things were so raw and the door had been flung so wide open for people to honestly just grieve and share what had been bottled up for so long, as far as like our racial experiences. And I think that Honestly, I think it was in that isolation. It was in that being drawn into this place of of quiet and contemplation that all of us had to enter, um, you know, because of of the situation. I think it was in that place where it was like we were, I was still enough before God, I think, to hear him. Wow. And to see him finally peel these layers back in my heart. Um, so I think the pandemic, I, I think it was the combination. It was the combination of being more or less scared to death. I mean, especially at the beginning there, none of us had any idea what yeah. it was we were about to walk into, um, that combination. And then for the first time kind of feeling that, that fear of like, oh my gosh, like what I have told myself all my life is not really happening. It's happening. Yeah, And there's no denying it. And I even talk about this in the book that um, watching that video of, of George Floyd, it was almost like for me, it was almost like a mosaic that had been kind of scattered every which way. It was almost like as I watched that video, it was like all of the pieces of history came into wow. a cohesive. And I could, it was like, I could see it. That's, That's a great it, image. It was an awakening. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and we're going to, switch gears back to the home education in a second, but <laughs> I'm just curious, was your husband on the same page? I mean, it, it, I'm imagining that for most of your relationship, you probably had pretty similar outlooks on race. Uh, it's hard to be that in, in that close a relationship with someone with drastically different views. I mean, how was that? Well, um, my husband is a white man. Okay. <laughs> So um, what's so interesting, and this is part of our story, we were actually talking about this last night. He's thinking about maybe putting something together or writing something. He's like, I got to share my side of the story. <laughs> um, we had always, to be honest, Jamar, we had always kind of prized ourselves on being this biracial couple. Mm. Um, it was something that we thought was unique, especially in the context and environments that we had been in. It wasn't maybe always the norm. And so we actually took a lot of pride in the fact that we um, were a biracial couple. And to be honest, we had never had that many pointed discussions about racism, um, bias. We really had never had any of those conversations. And I think the reason is I'm like, okay, well, I fell in love with you. You fell in love with me. Your family loves me. My family loves you. There's no racial issue here. Yeah. Um, and then, like I said, that infamous year, 2020, all of a sudden, 
I remember us literally looking at each other in our kitchen, having this huge blowout fight and argument over all of this and literally looking at each other. And both of us, I feel like communicated without words. I don't know who you are. Whoa. And the pain of that and the rawness of that was very difficult to navigate, but we've come out on the other side of that now. And so, and we kind of, in in a way, we kind of tag team the work that I do a lot and a lot of times. Um, But man, we had to work through some stuff. (laughs) Did it it also manifest in your families? Was that also a a revelation there? Yes, very much so. Very much so. We, and of course, and like I said, for me, here I was all along kind of, thinking more or less or trying lying to myself, telling myself that none of this really mattered, right? That it was not really an issue and that those who talked about it were blowing it out of proportion or being dramatic and all the other horrible um, things that we, that people have historically, you know, attributed to our people's plight and pain, um, you know, and then to find myself literally running into a wall mm. at full speed with some of these issues, um, with his family and even in my family in different ways. Um, it was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot to work through. <laughs> to say the least. Oh, yeah. but here you are talking about it, sharing about it. Um, I applaud your courage, your whole family's courage um, in doing this. And clearly, I've got to have you on for another episode to unpack some of oh, this I other stuff because it is it is really helpful and educational. But let's shift gears back to the home education part. I want to talk about some changes you've seen recently. But before we do that, talk about how you saw, even in retrospect, racism showing up in your home education circles, whether that's curriculum, uh, what was said, what wasn't said, whether that's community, uh, the, the sort of social aspect in the home education community. What was that landscape like in your experience? So when we first started home educating, obviously, um, as I've just explained, I was still not in the frame of mind that I am now. Although, as I said, there were nudges and things happening that were starting to get my attention. I just didn't know how to make sense of it or really even name it. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that happened was when I first started home educating my eldest daughter. So she was around five at the time. um, We were a part of a homeschooling group. That is from the classical tradition. Okay. And Unpack that real quick. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean, but go ahead. Yes. So I, you know, this specific tradition, the classical tradition, there was a lot of hype and a lot of push for that in the home education atmospheres, but even more specifically in the Christian spaces yeah. that we inhabited. Okay. And so I'm like, well, this is great. Like this must, you know, this must be it. I'm I'm excited about this. And so one of the things that I noticed very, very quickly, as much as the community that we were in, okay, we showed up, obviously we were the only family of color, which always bothered me even before I, Mm -hmm. you know, had my awakening or whatever. It's still uncomfortable to be the only one wherever you go. And I tried to explain it away in my mind and act like it wasn't a big deal. I know better now, but at the time I did. we were, you know, pretty much the only family of color, maybe besides a few others. Um, so that was the first thing. I'm like, okay, like most of the communities around here, they're going to be homogenous. Okay. Um, then we started delving more deeply into the actual curriculum. Okay. And I noticed 
right away in the classic tr- tradition, there's a heavy emphasis on um, memory work. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of that if you can train a child's memory, that later in life, they begin to hang other um, pieces of information on those pegs of knowledge that you've given them in what's called the grammar stage. Okay. So, you know, I've noticed all the memory work and all of the facts and everything that we were learning. I'm like, okay, out of the 300 some odd facts, historical facts, whatever that we're memorizing, I'm seeing maybe five references to anything having to do with the history of my people. My goodness. Um, And that's also what's so odd. I always more or less appreciated black history, but Mm. I I just didn't see the full connection. (laughs) We're all a mess. Yes. Um, So I was like, I was a mess. So that kind of, to me was like, wait a minute, where, where, where's the rest of the story? And it took me a couple of years. We were in that, that group. Um, I actually ended up leading and directing one of these campuses one Mm. of those years we were there for three years and then it was the pandemic year Mm. that circumstantially I actually never ended up getting back into that homeschooling group and it was providential in my opinion because then it was like okay now I really see what's up here that's kind of how I discovered it it was getting into it that I was like wait a minute these curriculums are telling half truths there's not much color, you know, and it just kind of started to all come together. Did you see any of the like lost cause ideology or the minimization around slavery or segregation or any of those kinds of things? Definitely. Mm. Absolutely. Um, And of course, a lot of times, I mean, there are, and I talk about this on my page quite a bit. One of the things I do is actually help families vet books for, um, you know, historical bias and those sorts of things. But Um, A lot of times it was not, it wasn't always in your face. You couldn't always see it. But once you have knowledge, like if I go back and read those things now, it's like as clear as day. And I think that's what's so dangerous about, you know what I mean? Not Mm -hmm. telling the truth about history because those subtle errors and half truths, they amount to an entirely um, inaccurate understanding of the world. (laughs) My goodness. Um, Is there, is there more, of a sort of system-wide movement to have uh, more representation and perspective in the homeschooling curriculum now, or is it still not that popular? No, it's definitely um, kind of at the forefront now. I've been actually very privileged to work alongside of a few other home educating moms um, that have been doing this several years longer than I am and they um, have greater spheres of influence and they are kind of really paving the way to bring um, more awareness to racism in the homeschooling curriculums, um, helping to vet books and put resources and tools into people's hands. So I would definitely say the landscape is changing. And you're part of that change. So let's talk about like what efforts that that you're putting in place and sharing with others to move forward in terms of racial representation and um, issues of justice within the homeschooling landscape? Yeah, so I've been able in the last couple of years to make, essentially just put together some resources that um, are able to kind of come along homeschooling families that are wanting to be racially aware and raise children um, that are not going to repeat <laughs> the Mm -hmm. same that we've been repeating um, for generations. And so I've been able to put together a few guides. Um, I have an online course that I recently launched um, 
about a month ago, month or two ago, um, to help families um, raise anti-racist kids. It's 10 lessons. There's a guidebook that goes along with it. And then every week, you know, I'm hosting Q and A's, you know, and then I, I write about it too. Sometimes I, I, I'm like afraid to like fully identify myself as like a current event commentator, but I feel like I've been doing that a lot. Yeah. Um, so who knows? Maybe that'll be. It. Come on. <laughs> we need more voices. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, as it comes up in culture, you know, yes. I've been talking about it and things like that. Wow. That's really powerful. Um, and I know it's making a difference because now people have at least one source that they can go to in in you and your your materials and resources. Um, and it's called At Home As It Is In Heaven, Raising Anti-Racist Children in Light of Eternity and the Hope of the Gospel. How can people access that? So they can find it um, on my website, which is just www.brittanymcneil.com. Um, and they can also access it directly through my Instagram page. I have it in the link in my bio right now, and I'll have it there for some time. So they can also access it there. What words of wisdom or encouragement would you give to, I guess it's two groups. One is uh, Black parents or guardians who maybe are contemplating homeschool but haven't yet. That's one group. And the other that that are in it but maybe feel isolated they're the only ones in their co-op or their group or whatever so to those groups the ones aren't yet in it and the ones who are in it what kind of words of encouragement wisdom perspective would you offer so for those who are not yet in it or making the choice to i would say that one of the greatest adventures of your lifetime is ahead of you and to um move into it with joy with expectancy um, trusting that the journey that you're embarking on is going to be fruitful um, and get excited. I think more than anything, be excited mm. because really the possibilities are endless with mm. home education. Um, to those who are already within the homeschooling community and who are feeling isolated and alone, um, I hear you and I see you and I've been there many times. And I would say persist. Mm. I would say if you feel that vision burning within you to keep the reins of your child's education firmly in your hand, don't let go just because you haven't found um, a group that fits your ideal of racial inclusion. Keep going. And sometimes that may mean you just got to start your own group. <laughs> you know, that's right. Build your um, own table. You got to just do it yourself. Um, but more than anything, I would just say persist and don't give up hope that you can find those other families um, that look like yours that can come alongside you in the journey. I knew this conversation was going to be phenomenal. <laughs> I didn't know how phenomenal. Um, Brittany, uh, like I said before, you honor us with your story, um, with uh, your candor and how willing you are to share this. I'm so grateful that you are in this homeschooling realm creating materials, promoting uh, perspectives that 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 I think will help. I was in another conversation in this series where it was a white man who's actually taking some pretty bold steps to fight racism. And I'm like, 
you're in the demographic that's like least likely to do this. How did that happen? <laughs> and he said, yeah. it's because my parents raised me with certain ideas and ideals. And so we have the opportunity right now as adults pouring into, or as you say, discipling children uh, to really lay a foundation that will help them not only now, but in the future uh, to be more broad-minded, more inclusive, and move more toward that, you know, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven vision of diversity that that we get in the bible so thank you for being part of that and thank you for being part of this fighting racism series thank you for having me fighting racism requires action and today we have heard what one homeschooling parent is doing to create a more racially inclusive and honest culture in homeschooling. Her story invites the question, what will you do to fight racism today? So think on it, and more importantly, act on it. Let me leave you with this. If the veterans of movements past fought for a brighter tomorrow, then we inherit their struggle. And we now, because of them, have the tools to fight for a more just and equitable world right now. Let's be faithful stewards of the hard-earned progress secured by those who came before us. We'll be back next time. Fighting Racism is a miniseries powered by Footnotes with Jamar Tisby and is made in collaboration with the Religion News Service. Our producer for the show is Bo York, with special thanks to Catherine Post, Paul O'Donnell, Roxanne Stone, and Adele Banks. Our guest this week is Brittany McNeil. You can learn more about her work and how you can support her in the show notes for this episode. I've been your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby, and we'll see you next time on Fighting Racism. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just these guys, you know?